Well, I'm back again. Um, <laughs> just had to grab my water and iPad there. But here we are, can you believe it, in week uh, six of Esther series. Someone was giving me a hard time and said, Damien, most pastors preach Esther in one week. Um, you've, been, you've been having this thing go on for a bit. But man, we are coming to this point today that, man, so much is unfolding. It has been building up to this moment of seeing God show up and show off. I'm calling today's talk The Great Reversal, the great reversal. How many of you guys believe in a great reversal that God can take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it for good, that he can turn things around? We're going to see here in Esther's story in one day how this reversal happens that changes everything. And it all points to the greatest reversal of ever is what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so as we've been talking through the story of Esther, one of the things that we see that's most important that kind of jumps off the page is this, this, this book that never mentions the name of God, never talk about God, never script other scriptures read and, and all this stuff. And it's away from Jerusalem as we talked about. And yet this, this, this author is so inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it in such a literary genius way that God is actually jumping off the pages, that he's skillfully working behind the scenes. And we go, why would God make a book, put a book in the Bible that doesn't even mention his name? Because there are times and there are seasons when you and your life can go, God, where are you? Where have you been? Are you active? Are you going to show up? Where are you, God? And we can look at this book and be encouraged and reminded of God's faithfulness, that he's always at work, even when we do not see his active hand, he is working. What the world would call coincidence, he's doing this. So, and I just want to remind you that, that God is a God that is loving and kind, and he's pursuing you in, in your own life. Yes. It's like there's, there's, he's working behind the scenes. He's, if you see it actively, amazing. If you're in a moment where it's like, God, where are you? I want you to, it's the Holy Spirit to speak to you and show you that he is actively working and moving. And he's just calling you into this thing called faith. This faith is this trust. Faith is really just like simply put, like coming to a place of trusting Jesus and his goodness to such a point that you're like, God, you can have my every day. My everyday life, because you are so good, I can trust you with everything. I can trust you with the everyday operations, everyday thoughts of my life. It's thinking highly enough of Jesus to trust him with your life. When we come to that place of just full surrender and full trust in him is when true life begins here and now. And so this morning, as I said, we've come to this pivotal point, this pivotal moment in the story of Esther. In fact, this was the easiest sermon for me to write this week because it just is like we have done all the context. We have built all the work up up until this moment. And now the scriptures are just going to bounce off the page and come alive. Really quick recap of, of uh, those maybe missing or just the, your, your mind's been all kind of different places. Esther is this about this Jewish girl living in Persia around... Uh, 575 BC, and she is married to King Xerxes, who is the king of possibly one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. And again, although she's Jewish, she has kept her nationality secret, quiet, concealed up until this point by direction of her uncle Mordecai. And last week we met this guy named Haman, who was put second in, in command uh, right under Xerxes, right, Xerxes, King Xerxes, second-hand man, and he was told to be bowed down and, and honored and all this way, but 
for some reason, Mordecai, as we saw, was not willing to bow down, was not willing to, to give him the honor that he deserved. And so Haman, this evil guy, that's not just him. It is the demonic spirit of uh, anti-Semitism that comes on that he wants to not just wipe out Mordecai, but wants to wipe out all of the Jewish people, 14, 15 million people at this time. And upon learning this plan, Mordecai challenges Esther to step up to the moment to intervene on the behalf of God's people, that God has put you in such a, such a time as this. And she does it. She's bold, she grows in boldness. She says the famous statement, if I perish, I perish. She's making plans to go and stand before the king, even though it may cost her for her life. And so right at the end of chapter 4, we said she's told everybody, told all the Jewish believers in Susa to fast for me for the next three days before she goes in. So here we go. On the third day of the feast, this is chapter 5, Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner courts of the palace just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting in his royal throne facing the entrance. Again, Jesus jumping off of the pages in this story. The story takes place about 500 years before Jesus. But the Bible continues to have this stubborn way of pointing out these things, especially three days. What Joseph is in the prison, and he says to the cupbearer and to the chef, in three days you're going to be pulled out of the prison. Jonah in the belly of a whale for three days considered dead. And then he comes back to life. She is in her chambers for three days, and then now she comes out before the king, all pointing to Jesus, who was in the tomb for three days and resurrected, right? Jesus just coming out, and then all of a sudden it says, there's these little details of like, she's putting on her royal clothes, her royal robes. She is now one that is walking in her identity as a queen of Persia. She has had new boldness and new confidence. And so just imagine, she's put on her, her thing that identifies her as the queen. And there she is, like, standing outside the courts of where the king is. And remember, he's surrounded by his council. He's surrounded by the immortals, these great warriors that are willing to chop off the head of anybody that's not invited into the king's presence. I can imagine her sitting there and, like, kind of, like, mustering up some courage, mustering up some faith, saying one more little prayer before she goes in. And then, you know, I could imagine, like, they, they look across and they see her and like, well, well this, is, this is an unusual occurrence. Like, the queen is here, like, kind of uninvited. Like, whoa, everybody's kind of probably, I could imagine everybody kind of turning their head and their attention to what's going on. And King Xerxes sees her and he, he sees his wife dressed in her robes, respectful. Not yelling at him, not angry at him, not browbeating him. Not hands on the hips, the chicken neck going, you know, like, I got something to tell you, you know, not with a lot of attitude that she comes in. She comes in graciously, graciously, respectfully, and we just, we just get this picture of this gracious woman, like this, this kind woman. And it's not a look of um, disrespect or antagonizing or I've got a bone to pick with you. And he, he points out the scepter to her. And the king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you even if it is half the kingdom. Now, again, this is pomp and, and kind of arrogance again. This is an idiom for saying, like, he, kings would say this. Oh, even if it's up to half of the kingdom. Now, you would be foolish to ask for half of the kingdom. No one would ever do this. But we see this throughout these kings. These, king Herod did it when his, when his daughter-in-law danced. She's, she's like, 
what do you want? I'll give you anything. And she goes, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Right? And so like this, this, these ways of these arrogant kings kind of like, I'm so powerful. I'll give you whatever you want. But she is direct. She's courageous. She's wise. She's bold. She's respectful. And she just says, hey, let the king and Haman come to a banquet I have prepared for the king. Haman? Like you want, you, want, you want dinner with Haman, the guy who has just like said, I want to kill you and your family of 15 million people that has set this in motion, that has asked for the king's permission to do that. You want him to come to a meal. It's like, yeah, let, let, let's let the king come to a meal. That's a nice request. Let the king come to a meal that I want to have. And just, just have like a nice little dinner party. And I, we can be a little bit surprised at this like, response of like she's in the in the presence of the king and like you have an opportunity to bring it up and like how, how do you say this and she's like instead of like okay like what about all these people who have a death sentence and the urgency of the moment she's able to compose her emotions and she realizes it's not time yet it's not the right time for me to like rip off my royal clothes and go ha I'm a Jewish person you didn't know I've been married for five years I've been lying to you about my nationality I believe you're a false god because I worship the one true god and I think that your secondhand man is evil like that that's not going to go well right and she's also she's also quite smart she's a smart woman okay she says how do I get the attention of my king how do I get attention what is the way to a man's heart food right let's make a nice meal let's have some food together hey the bible is filled with all kind of practical stuff for married people all throughout it it is it is men men would agree with me why it's just like listen especially in this time when like family is home so much like you come home and like sometimes i come home and it's like I boom right out the gate I'm like now tech support hey dad this thing's not working the ipad's not working and this phone's got a problem can you fix this computer and the printer won't do this and this and you're like Whoa, whoa. And then, hey, we got to make plans for these three days from now. I'm like, wives, from experience, it's really nice to come in, sit down for a moment, have a meal, have a beverage, every choice, and enjoy, and then go, hey, let's talk about what is ahead. It warms the man's heart. Okay, so there's all kind of stuff there, all right? So then it says, so then they're having the meal, and they're, they're having the feast, and they're, they're lounging after you. They're like, hey, what, what, what could I, what could I, what is your request? Whatever it is, even half the kingdom. And everybody's like leaning forward. Okay, she's going to say it. She's going to say it. And here's Vester's reply. She says, this is my request. My request in deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, again, being respectful, if it pleases the king to grant my request and to do as I ask, please come with Haman tomorrow to a banquet. I will prepare for you, and I will explain what this is all about. We're like, what? You have the attention of the king. Everybody's leaning in. And you're like, hey, I wanted to invite you. You, you risked your life to walk into the court of the king to ask him for dinner. There's got to be something more. He knows that another question's coming. And then you have dinner, and you're like, hey, how about we come to dinner again? And you're like, come on, Esther, just, just spit it out. Again, what she's demonstrating is grace and patience, which Galatians calls fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. Like she's, she's not in a hurry. She knows this. And, and again, it seems kind of weird of like one meal to another meal. Well, do you remember just a few chapters ago? Like this guy likes to have, meal, have a lot of meals, a lot of banquets, like 180-day banquet that he had last time, right? And so he's like used to like, hey, let's build this thing up, the anticipation. So it's like this anticipation is building of what she's going to ask. And it also prophetically sets forth of what's going to happen in the next 24 hours where everything 
that the enemy has meant for evil starts to be reversed. She is, by her patience, by her trust, she is setting her enemy up for a trap that she could not even devise. She could not make this up. This plan is so much bigger than her. She could not put this into play. All right, so verse 9, they had the meal, they leave him, and it's verse 9 says, Haman is a happy man when he leaves. I mean, he just left Haman is now, like, I mean, he's, like, got a bounce in his step. He's singing along, like, woohoo! I, amongst everyone else, I'm the, I'm the second-hand man of the king. I was just invited, nobody else, just me, to dinner with the king and the queen. And not only that, have I got great wealth, I've got great influence, people bow down to me, and I'm going again to dinner with the king and the queen. Could you imagine? He's just, like, Whistling, oh, happy day as he's going down the road, right? And then all of a sudden, how do you guys know happiness can be stolen like that? Happiness can be gone like that. So it says, <laughs> it's as soon as he's happy, and then he says, but when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not, again, Mordecai. Remember, this is the guy that would not bow down, Esther's uncle. Nobody knows his uncle at this point. And he would not bow down earlier. And he's like, it's this funny way of like, Boom. Happy to, like, throw in a party. Here's this guy that just ticks me off, makes me upset, and, and, and bothers me. And you would think Mordecai at this point would be like, that was stupid. That was really dumb that I didn't bow down. Because I didn't bow down, now 14 million people are sentenced to death. Let me, oh, there's Haman. Hey, hey, how was dinner? Hey, hey, let me make up for some bows now. Let me bow multiple times, right? You would think that's what the response, hey, can we, can we reverse this thing? No, Haman, not standing up, trembling or nervous before him. He doesn't do anything. He's like, hey, buddy, how was dinner, right? Like just kind of mocking him, you know. And, you know, I don't know if that's right and courageous or wrong and stupid. Like, right? You know, I mean, how many of you guys know that it's a real fine line? It's a real fine line between being right and courageous and being wrong and stupid especially in 2020. It's like, where is that line? Because I feel like we're straddling it all the time. Amen? All right. <laughs> like, right and courageous, stupid and wrong. All right. So what, what, this is what Haman's doing. So he's furious. Haman is furious. He restrains himself from getting down and choking the guy. And you can just, like, see it on his face from happy to sad, from joyful to upset, from just like this this anger, this hatred that he has. The Bible goes on and tells us that he, he went home and he tells his, his wife and his friends, he's kind of bragging and boasting about his wealth and about his influence and about how he was invited to dinner with the king and the queen and he's going again tomorrow. But he says in verse 13, and he adds this, but with all, but this is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting there at the palace gate. So Haman's wife, Zithra, and, her, and his friends suggest, set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall, and in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. This pleased him, and he ordered the pole to be set up. A 75-foot pole. Guys, the ceilings in here are like 25 feet. Three times as high pole to put a man on. Could you imagine, like, maybe, like, up on a hill, like, on his property, he wants, like, to, to make a, a, a statement of this is what happens if you defy Haman, that you get hung out there for everybody to see. And guess what? His wife suggested, single people, it matters who you marry. 
it really matters. Like, you come home from the office upset. It was a rough day at the job site, and you're complaining about someone. If your wife says, you know, you ought to kill him, you ought to put him on a 75-foot pole, and you agree, that's a toxic relationship. Get into some counseling, right? Like, <laughs> that is, we'll pay for it. We'll pay for the counseling if that kind of conversation is happening in your house, all right? So, <laughs> yeah, babe, that's a good idea. All right, so... Um, <laughs> So then chapter 6, these things just start going sideways for Haman. Again, we see God's hand working. Esther, Mordecai could not set this stuff up. Chapter 6 starts out with this. That night, the king, after the banquet, maybe ate too much, whatever, whatever was going on, had trouble sleeping. So he ordered attendants to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. I'm having a hard time sleep. Come and read to me about how great I am and all the great things I've achieved and all the great things I've done. You see this guy's pride all through this book. And in those records, he discovers an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigtha and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door of the king's private quarters and had plotted to assassinate the king. He says, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? The tenant says, nothing has been done for him. Five years, nothing was done for Mordecai. Five years has passed. Nothing's done. All of a sudden, the night before the second banquet, he can't sleep. He reads this. And this is the entry of this complete reversal that is happening. And it's, it's, it's put into action by the faith and the bravery and the courage of Esther to step in and join God with what he is doing. And, but it's, it, but it, that's just a part of it. It's, not, it's, not, it, it's nothing that Mordecai advised her to do. It's not even the stupidity of Haman. It is God doing this. Like he is, Once we step out in faith, he starts working and starts moving in incredible ways. And this is this pivotal moment that the king can't sleep. And he's like, I, we, we would call this coincidence, right? It's a coincidence he can't sleep. It's a coincidence that he asked for the reading of his reign, and then he goes back to five years about Mordecai. Like, this is all, we would say, oh, that's a coincidence. No, that is God's invisible hand of providence working, right? And so we see that he's working there, and then, then it even builds even more. <laughs> it even goes like, before that, verse 4 says, like, they hear some noise out. And who's out there in the court, out of court, the king cried? As it happened, Haman was just arriving in the outer court of the palace to ask the king to impale Mordecai in the pole he had prepared. Coincidence again, the arch enemy, two enemies, he comes stumbling in. Hey, can I have permission to get before? And he says, hey, bring him in, order him in. Haman came in to the king and said, what should I do for a man who truly pleases me? Once again, God's name's not mentioned, but he is all over the pages of Esther. Haman thought to himself, who would the king wish to honor more than me? So he replied, if the king wishes to honor someone, listen, I believe that, that, that Haman still has an opportunity to humble himself of change. And we have choice to choose humility or humiliation. We really have that choice. We can humble ourselves or we will one day, someday, maybe for some that's earlier than others, be humiliated. We can either humble ourselves or be humiliated. So he said he should, he goes, he should bring, so he thinks it's all about him. He should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse that the king himself has ridden with the royal emblem on its head. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let them see that man whom the king wishes to honor is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. 
Have the officials shout out as they go, this is what the king does for someone who wish, he wishes to honor. He's like, man, I did, this is going to be awesome. I'm heading to, I thought I was just going to kill Mordecai today. Now I get to be paraded around. And the king replies and goes, excellent. The king said to Haman, quick, take the robes of my horse and do just as you said for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the gate of the palace, right? And it's just like amazing that the, the turn, everything is turning. Leave nothing out that you suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's own horse, and led him to the city square. Now Haman has to shout for everyone, this is what the king does for a man he wishes to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to, his, to the palace gate. But Haman hurried home, dejected, completely humiliated, crying, weeping, I could imagine, boohooing to his wife again, right? God offers humility or humiliation, right? Humility or humiliation, but for him it's even worse. And the reversal now is just like in full speed. This thing is not slowing down. He's paraded him through the city. He didn't get what he planned on that day. The day is going by. All these people that used to, he were supposed to, like he got upset because Mordecai did not show him respect. Now Mordecai is getting all the respect. I mean, could you imagine Mordecai in that moment? Like he's probably enjoying this. Like, oh my gosh, justice and vengeance. This is so great. But Mordecai still has a death sentence on him. Like he's still, he's gonna, he's still gonna die, right? All right, so Haman told his wife, Zareth, and his friends what had happened. His wise advisors and his wife said, Since Mordecai, this man who has humiliated you, is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. This is the enemy speaking of God's people. And this is, this is, I want you to see this, that when you have the righteousness of God, when you have the favor of God, when you have Jesus on your life, your enemy wants to think that he can destroy you, but it is futile. He cannot destroy you. He cannot do anything to stop what God has spoken, what God has put into place. Amen. He cannot do it. That applies to these Jewish people and to the believers that are grafted into his kingdom. While they were still talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly took Haman to the banquet. He couldn't even really complain, make another plan. The eunuchs are back. The eunuchs keep on showing up in this story. They're walking in. They're like, dude, what you got the 75-foot pole set up in your yard for? That's Okay, that was for Mordecai. But didn't you just pray Mordecai around? All right. So that's going to come back up. All right. About chapter 7. Listen, we're like going on to the third chapter today. We are covering lots of scripture. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On the second occasion, while they were drinking wine, the, queens, the king said to Esther, tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. Queen Esther replied, if I have found favor with the king, if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people be spared. You can imagine the king being like, what? What are you talking about? For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. The king, all upset. Who would do such a thing? Xerxes demanded. Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you, the queen, my queen, the most powerful. I'm the most powerful man, and someone wants to kill you. Esther replied, this wicked man, Haman, is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and the queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in rage and went out to the palace garden. 
So now, like, this news is, like, flooding the king. Like, oh, my gosh, this was these people. And he knows that he was tricked, that he was fooled by Haman to do this. He knows that his signet ring was on this edict to go out to kill these people. And so now he's like, what do I have to do? Because my name, whatever he puts forward, cannot be revoked. It cannot be turned back. And so he's trying to find a way to, to, to save face, to find a way out of this. And again, coincidence, God just continues to make a way that, like, right? The king's dilemma. He's got this dilemma of, like, I, I signed off on this. These people's blood is on my hand also. And while he leaves, Haman completely loses his cool. Haman, however, stayed behind and pleaded for his life with Queen Esther. And he knew that, <clears throat> for he knew the king intended to kill him. In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king returned from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? As soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. He walks out. Esther's there on the couch. And Haman throws himself down, saying, please, please, please give me mercy, please give me. And, like, the king comes in and goes, she's, he's trying to assault my wife. Sexual assault, he calls. Do, do you really think that's true? Do you really think in that moment that Haman is like, this is a good time to romance the queen? This is a good moment for romance. This is a good moment to warm her up. Do you really, do you really think that's his intent? No. But there was a law put in place that, uh, that no man could be within seven feet of the queen. They had social distancing back then, too. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and no one could be within, within, <laughs> within that close to them except for the eunuchs, right? And so it's like she's sitting on, if she's sitting on the couch, you don't go, hey, queen, bump over. I want to sit down, too. No, if she's on the couch, you don't get to sit on the couch, right? And so he, like, falls down in front of the couch. And so the king sees this as an opportunity, to blame it all on Haman, to let Haman die. See, this king is not like our King Jesus. This king, he reinterprets the facts. He changes things. He rewrites things to fit his narrative. Our king is a better king than Xerxes. He doesn't have to manipulate things. Right? So he sees that, says this is opportunity, that he has permission to kill this guy who wrote this edict, and the blood can be washed from his hand, and it all can be put on Haman. If I just yell out sexual assault, which is ironic, is... Haman lied about God's people so that they could be killed. And now this great king is going to lie about Haman so he will be killed. Man, just the, the things in the story. All right. So then one of the, human, the, the eunuchs that was there in the morning, bring, or they're bringing him to the dinner. He's like, hey, you know, uh, you know Haman set up a 75-foot pole in his yard. Uh, it's standing there. It's not being used. How about, and the king's like, yeah, let's, let's put him on that. Let's impale Haman on his own pole in his yard. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. This story that we've been growing into is like it's it's been building up to this moment for weeks now of these 24 hours of like it was dark, it was terrible things happening, all this awful stuff. Where's God? Where's God at? And then all of a sudden, in a moment, there's a great reversal. In a moment, things, when they were so dark, they seemed impossible, they turned uh, around. Review it real fast. Chapter 4, Mordecai is wearing sackcloth and is covered in ashes as a symbol of his distress. Chapter 6, he's wearing the king's clothing. Chapter 5, Mordecai is at one point walking around the city, weeping and wailing, while Haman is described as a very happy man. At the end of chapter 6, we see 
Haman is now weeping. Haman is the one who is who's supposed to be around town and everybody de- and demanding honor and respect and everybody bow down. But yet, Mordecai is eventually paraded around town and everybody's giving him honor and respect. Chapter 5, Haman brags about his wealth, his great wealth and his influence with the queen. Chapter 8, you can read it later on, that all of Haman's wealth is given to Mordecai. Chapter 3 says the city of Susa was bewildered, confused when this edict went out that all the Jews were going to die. By the end of chapter 8, it says the city was rejoicing. The gallows that were set up for Mordecai eventually become Haman's own instrument of destruction. This story is about reversal that man could not plan, that this is the sovereign hand of God, that he reverses what the enemy meant for evil, and he turns it on their head. Not only does he get the people out, like the enemy's plans fall on himself. That's what he does. But yet this amazing plan, this amazing reversal pales in comparison to the reversal that was made available to you and me because of our simple faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, talk about the real reversal. Jesus, born, uh, living in heaven, leaves heaven to come and be born in absolute poverty. He leaves the riches of heaven, comes into poverty, so that we might have the riches of heaven disposable to us. Right? The Lord of all creation comes to be part of creation so that he might rescue us at the right time, at the time that was intended, and the time of our need. The master of the universe shows himself a humble servant to all. The one who's created all comes and lives among us. And it says that he who had no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were destined to an eternal death damnation away from God because of our sin. But the reversal of what Jesus did in our place. He took our sin and our death and he said, oh death, where is your sting? And he reversed it and he brought us to life. This is the greatest reversal of all that God loves you. And he wants to change what is intended for you and give you his righteousness in that place. That is our Savior. It's pointing it out the whole time again Every bit of the Bible is pointing towards Jesus, the gospel, the message, the hope. Because, listen, Jesus is a better Esther. Esther waited three days to leave her chamber chamber to save her people. Jesus waited three days to leave his tomb and save his people. Esther was clothed in royal robes, but in Jesus Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. Esther was welcomed in the presence of King Xerxes only once risking her life. But we can come Boldly before the worthy, holy, most righteous God because of what Jesus did on our behalf anytime, day or night, whenever we come before him. Right? We are welcome. Esther prepared a lavish banquet for the King Xerxes. But Jesus is preparing even a more lavish banquet for us as believers. Right? Esther was offered half the kingdom from King Xerxes. Jesus offers us all of his kingdom, all of it is our inheritance, not part, every single bit of it. This is the amazing exchange. This is the amazing reversal of what he does on our behalf. And if you do not know him, if you do not have relationship with him, he wants to come and know you. And this, this, 
this effect of sin to be set free from it forever and come into new life. Because what the enemy meant for evil, he's turning it for good. We see God can only do what he can do in these moments, in these situations. And I would imagine that some of us are walking through things personally, maybe in our lives, in our homes, in our school, in our work, in our community, in our state, in our nation. Whatever it may be, you're walking through these circumstances and it feels like you sense that the enemy is winning. And you look around and go, man, I don't, you can't even figure out how God would answer your prayer. Because it just seems too complex, too hard, too difficult to turn it around. Whether that is finances, whether that is a marriage, whether that is a housing situation, a job situation, whether it is in your own mind of your mental, like your depression, your anxiety, your worry, your doubt. Like you just find yourself in a cycle and you're going, how can I be set free from this? How? I don't even see how God could answer this prayer. And he's coming to tell us that what the enemy meant for evil, he is turning it around. And in this, that's why he gives us this beautiful story, Esther, that he builds our faith. He's building our faith that we can see even in the darkest of situations, darkest of circumstances, that when your adversary is attacking you and harming you, he can still turn it around for good. And we can confidently trust in the words of Jesus that he's turning things around. Amen.